We're going to be finishing out the chapter, starting in verse 16. And we're going to be proceeding from where we left off last week with Cain and Abel. Because God in his mercy, even though Cain killed Abel, God did not kill him. He allowed him to continue to live, even under God's protection. And even though Cain himself was not remorseful, God still showed compassion on him. And what we're reading of in verses 16 through 26 is the culture that was spawned out of Cain, out of a murderer who's going to erect the first city. I think you might be just as surprised I am. There's going to be points at where you're going to be surprised at the culture that Cain produces and some things not so surprised by. Let's read God's holy, inerrant word. Chapter 4, verse 16 of Genesis. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one, Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son born, and his name, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Cain is a cold-blooded, unrepentant, unremorseful murderer who even in his escape, even after God's grace and allowing him to continue to live under God's protection, even after the only things that he seemed concerned about when it came to the murder of his brother was that he was going to suffer the consequences, fearful for his own life being taken, and fearing for his own wandering, 
he goes into a land to produce a culture. In the land of Nod, by the way, that word just means wandering. A region of the world that was named after its most famous inhabitant, Cain. And what does Cain do there? He builds a city and he prides himself and his children in their accomplishments. And then Seth doesn't seem to have too many accomplishments in comparison. What we see in Cain is a culture that's produced out of him that's pretty recognizable to us. What we see is great cultural achievements in the world, don't we? We see the production of inventions and scientific advancements and beautiful art proceeding from people who don't know God. Elements of God's goodness and his preserving grace in their lives. And it causes us to maybe just reconsider some things and to try to think through what's going on here. Because a curse has fallen on Adam and Eve that has affected all of their children. They are defiled in all their parts, all their faculties of mind, all their heart, their desires of their heart, and even their own body. We see that their corruption, as we go throughout the Bible, we see that people are utterly indisposed to do what is good, disabled in a way, and actually have the opposite natural inclination not to do good, not to show love to God and neighbor, but to hate God and neighbor. Then how do we account for the goodness of this world? When you go to a grocery store, I don't go to Kroger to buy automotive tools, even though there is a small section now that's devoted to it. You go to a specific store to get a specific product. What does the world offer us? I think the reality is, is that the world has a lot of good things in it. But there's something key and very important that it does not offer. And that's really the subject of this sermon. When looking at the ways of this world, seeing exactly what the, the world offers to us, to be enjoyed by us, and yet what it can never have, and what it doesn't have, and what it doesn't offer. It helps us in this way. Jesus told Peter to not set his mind on things that are below, but on things that are above. He told Peter that in his focus on just avoiding suffering, he was being used by Satan to accomplish Satan's purposes. Why? Because the baseline thing that Peter had wrong is his mind was set on this world and not on God's plans, not on God's will. And it's really easy for us to get sidetracked in this because we like the good things of the world and we get confused with how much time and devotion do I dedicate to the things of this world, to my job, to enjoyment and recreation. At what point do I get out of balance? 
What if it's the product of a sinful culture or maybe even the direct invention of a sinful person? Does that mean I'm culpable in it? All these questions, I think, are actually addressed in our text. And the first thing that we see about the ways of the world is that it truly is marked by great cultural achievements. That this world is truly marked by great cultural achievements. When Cain comes to this city, this is the surprising part to me, is that you have a murderer who founds a city. And he names it after his son, Enoch. Enoch means dedication. He's dedicating it and seeing his pride in his offspring. He was worried that he would be murdered before and that he would be wandering all the, over the place. And in a sense, Cain, in his rebellion, is using his God-given freedom in, in God's created order to actually try to rebel against that wandering, to establish a city, to find pride in his continuing offspring. And the focal point of this genealogy, verse 18, is we see the whole goal of it is to follow a line to get to a specific individual, Lamech or Lamech. And Lamech is, first of all, identified by the pride that he has. He has two wives, Adah, named for ornament, adornment, and Zillah referring to a sparkle, beauty. He's married to two beautiful women. And we'll deal with that in a second. But the first thing that we should notice about this is that each of those women have two sons. And what are, what's the distinguishing feature about them? Well, Adah has two sons, Jabel, who's fathered, or was the originator of those who dwell in tents and have livestock? Jabel is an entrepreneur, not able to work the ground under the curse of Cain, not able to be a farmer. He's figured out another way. He's a cowboy, living in the wilderness, herding livestock, and livestock could be flocks, it could be cattle, probably not used for meat yet since the ordinance that were given in the Noahic Covenant in chapter, Genesis chapter 9, but you can get lots of things out of animal. Their skins, their wool, their milk, sustenance. We have the first cowboy. I say that kind of jokingly. But his brother is also the originator of a great accomplishment of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. These are two actual ancient instruments. And they are ancient instruments. The lyre is an ancient stringed instrument, looking kind of like a mini harp. And the pipe is an ancient woodwind instrument, not made out of wood, probably, but like a flute is in the woodwind class, even though it's made out of metal. What we see is that entrepreneurship came out of Cain, something to be prideful of. And so did the arts of music. Of things that are beautiful. And Zillah, not to be outdone, she has two children, a man, a man and a or a son and a daughter. And he was a forger of all instruments of bronze of iron. 
And that forger is the word for sharpener. He's a metalsmith. Forging from the ground different useful tools and technologies. And his daughter is named sort of like his wives. And this might offend us, is named for a name that's really close to Naomi, meaning beauty, pleasurable, pleasantness. We'll get to the objectification of women that almost immediately happens with sinful humanity. But we can't just go over and gloss over the fact that what we have here is profound inventiveness. What we have is the marks of common grace that we even see in our own culture. What is the effect of city building, of technology, of the arts, of entrepreneurship? All these things contribute good to our neighbors. All these things mitigate the effects of the fall. These are all things to rejoice in. And the Bible does not condemn these things per se. We as Christians should be fine with utilizing technology as good things. The fact that we have techn medical technology that allows us to live, as long as we do, healthy lives and not die of common diseases is a good thing to be rejoiced in. But with all these great achievements, we have to keep them in perspective. We might be able to mitigate the effects of the fall at best. But all its efforts are temporary. Music is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be... Uh, to be enamored with, to rejoice in God's goodness in. But both believers and unbelievers produce good music. And actually, I've had conversations with people, specifically Graham. And isn't it so interesting that what we see with the best of art coming from the world that doesn't believe in God, is that something that undermines your faith? It shouldn't. Because God has produced, has preserved human capabilities amongst all humanity, not just Christians. Non-Christians can, can produce good art. It should not surprise us when we see ingenuity, that's the word I was looking for, ingenuity in the unbelieving world producing inventions that do good. The Bible does not give us a perspective after the fall that should lead us in seeing that the root of all mankind totally bent away from God and bent away from love of nature doesn't mean that we are now totally and utterly doing everything that is evil constantly. But it's really important to see the reason. The reason is not some glimmer of goodness that has been left intact in man. The reason for it is God's grace. His kindness towards all humanity living a life that is pleasant and pleasing i cannot avoid looking at matthew henry and what he says about this he says that 
the worldly things are the only things that carnal, wicked people set their, set their hearts upon and are most ingenious and industrious about. Here, with Lamech, were a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not the father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were the devices of how to be rich, how to be mighty, and how to be merry, but nothing of God. What we have here in common culture, and this is true of all of everyone's participation in the common good of society, that it's limited. And what we can see, and we should not be surprised to see in society, is wisdom in the world that reflects things like how to be rich, how to be strong, how to get ahead in life. Jordan Peterson, who's an unbeliever, knows that he gives the advice of making up your bed in the morning, having a mark of success to get you out of your lull of depression. To start off your day, your day with a success so that you can motivate and do things well throughout your day. That's wise advice. But the important thing to know about all the advice is that it might lead to your wealth. It might lead to your strength. It might lead to your temporary happiness in the midst of sin and misery. But it does not lead to the escape of that sin and misery. At its very best, it leads to a mitigation of it. See, the thing about the accomplishments, the cultural accomplishments of this world, is that it's always held back by sin. It's always held back by sin. That second point. And we see it, first and foremost, in this speech of Lamech. He speaks to his wives. Not only is the first sin... Murder and goes to extreme with Cain. But what we see with Cain's sons is they, per, they participate in the same sorts of sins. There's a covenantal principle that we're going to explore more next week about family structures. That the second commandment talks about the sins of the fathers being attached to uh, their children to the third and fourth generation. The mirror of that phrase and the thing that we should listen and really clue in on, though, is that, but to those that love God, God is faithful to a thousand generations. That we're talking here when it comes to families in generalities. Not every Christian family is going to have Christian children, but we hold out the promises of God to it, and we're not surprised that the vast majority of Christians are produced by Christian families. It's a general principle. And here, that's actually the point. We're given a genealogy of Cain, and we see people like Cain. That they produce culture, good things, but they don't know God. And we'll know that from the contrast of the line of Seth and his family, starting in verse 25 and continuing through chapter 5 next week. But sin holds back this culture. It's in it doesn't take very long that we get the very first polygamous couple. And if you want to know Lamech's view of women, 
You can look at the names of the women that he has, or even his daughter. Ornament, twinkling, and pleasing. It should not surprise us that true, what is it? Negative male attributes, there's a word for it. I don't know it right now, it's not coming to mind. Ma whatever, toxic masculinity, there we go. What we see here is a true version of toxic masculinity. The objectification of women to be used for his tools of pleasure. It's not surprising that we see this in pagan cultures. That we see this in our own culture. Isn't that what the whole pornography business is predicated on? Of turning now people into objects? But it goes beyond that. He speaks to his wives to hear his voice. What's the thing that makes him proud? I think, yes, the accomplishments of his children. But more than that, he has a song. By the way, the first song is, in is Adam in praise of his wife. Here, the second song is a Lamech's song to his wives. That's not by accident that that's there. And he sings, though, that he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, or the word there is for boy, for striking me. If Lamech's, or if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What we have here is a man who's rejoicing in violence, in revenge, in murder. He's proud of the fact that he will murder a man. The word there, kill, is kind of soft. Cain didn't, it didn't say killed his brother. It said he murdered his brother, which the same word comes up in the sixth commandment. And here again, he's murdered a man for wounding me or bruising me. This is not an eye for an eye justice. Eye, an eye for an eye principle in the Old Testament was not so that the whole world would go blind. It was meant to temper the justice system to make sure that the crime got an equal deserving punishment. That the punishment fit the crime. And that you did not exceed that for someone that really got on your nerves. Or that you didn't give a lesser sentence to someone who you really like. Lamech's proud of the fact that he will murder a man for simply bruising him. And he'll murder a boy for simply hitting him. This is the thing that causes him pleasure. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. When speaking of the enemies of the cross, he says in verse 19 that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their appetites. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The pattern that we see and amidst all the goodness, amidst all the ingenuity, what we see in the marks of the line of Cain, in the marks of all the unbelieving world, is the same intellect that God has preserved in them, the same capacities. They're all twisted for their own purposes. Twisted 
capabilities. Producing good things which are then used for evil ends. Good desires for marriage, but then expanding a little for pleasure's sake, at the expense of others. Glorying in their strength, doing what God sees as shameful. If you haven't heard of Andrew Tate, don't look him up. That's okay. There are a lot of young people that are gravitating towards a male role model, role model of strength. Because masculinity in this world in general seems to be diminished. People are looking for masculine role models. And what they're attracted to is people like Lamech. People who glory in their shame. Glory with, and I'm trying to use euphemisms here, body counts. Glory that they are stronger and able to master other people. This is the mark in what the twisted sinful world uses its capacities for. And this happens even when people have good intent. Alfred Nobel, who, by the way, he grew up a Lutheran, but he became an atheist in his youth. Alfred Nobel was a chemist, an engineer, and an industrialist whose most famous invention was dynamite. And there's a popular story, which we don't know if it's myth or not, is that in 1888... Nobel was astonished when reading the no newspaper and he saw his own obituary in it. His brother had died that day and there was an obituary and they just got the name wrong. And the title of the obituary was The Merchant of Death is Dead. And that shocked him. He created dynamite and it was used for good purposes. Blasting holes to make tunnels for transportation. Entire cities now can be in mountain communities when there's a, it's cleaved with dynamite. And if you go through Kentucky, you can really see the steep mountains that they've carved through with dynamite. But the same thing that was constructed, I don't know the intentions of Alfred Nobel, but I don't have to presume evil intent in, in his ingenuity of it to know that it's used for evil means. All inventions work that way. Planes, six years later, are used for, in wars to drop bombs and heavy artillery. The internet, need I say more? Used for good, and yet, now it's a cesspool for evil. This is how technology works. This is how culture works. It's produced by believers and unbelievers alike. We all have participation in it. And whether your intention is for good or evil, there's only so much success that you're going to produce out of it. This should, for us as Christians, set our expectation bar not too high when we think of a popular phrase of redeeming the culture. We should be about good, doing good for our neighbors. But we need to make sure that what we're doing in, as Christians in society is not meant not redeeming the culture, but simply mitigating its evil. That's the best that we can do. Because 
Not only does the world have great achievements, not only is it held back by sin, but it's also none of its achievements are redemptive. We have to recognize that when it comes to the good things that the world produces, whether Christians or non-Christians are working in it, none of its achievements are redemptive. Isn't it striking that in verse 25, we shift back to Adam and Eve who mourn over Abel. First of all, they're given a son. His name is Seth, and it's related to the word appointed. God has appointed for him another seed, or Eve, another seed in the place of Abel. We know that all these people, by the way, had many other sons and daughters. All of them. What we're given is a select list for a specific purpose to see these lines of Cain and these lines of Abel. Who's Abel's replacement? Not just any brother or any sister, but specifically Seth. We see Eve's hope in God's promises that she believed to not have been snuffed out when Cain murdered Abel. That God appointed another seed. She's believing on God's promises in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring, the seed, literal word there, of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It seemed for a moment that the serpent had crushed and annihilated the seed of the woman. But that is not the case. The cross was not the instrument by which Satan destroyed Jesus, even though that's what he thought he was doing. It was the very instrument that God used as the toolkit in his hand to accomplish his purposes. And Seth here, by the way, is another. He's, he's Adam's or Abel's replacement. Not in the sense of just another child, because they had lots of other ch children. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 5 tells us. But he's his replacement in the sense of the line of faith. So what's the primary marker when we see these two families is that the difference between a physical line of Cain and a physical line of Abel. Well, no. It's a spiritual seed. Satan doesn't have physical children. Cain bear his mark because they are under his power. They are his slaves, Ephesians 2 tells us. Or, yes, Ephesians 2 tells us. Willing slaves but slaves nonetheless, to Satan's purposes. And Seth has been appointed for Abel. And Seth does not name his child after strength, accomplishments. Actually, the only accomplishment that we have in the line of Seth is just one phrase. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Enosh means weak and frail. Not exactly the beauty and the strength that we saw in all of Cain's children. It seems that Seth had a more realistic expectation, understanding that, you know what, Abel died. The line of the faithful is one that's persecuted, seems weak in this world, suffering. And at that time, the thing that distinguishes the line of Seth 
is that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. Where's our list of cultural achievements? Where's our contribution to the arts, to the sciences, to technology? That's not the thing that makes us different. What makes us different is that we belong to the Lord our God. People have interpreted this, began to call on the name of the Lord in lots of different ways. And it is kind of a confusing statement or phrase. It could be referring to public worship, even though Cain and Abel were worshiping publicly. Some people have took it to be prayer, which calling out to the Lord makes sense. But they've been talking with God. Even Cain has been talking with God, which is the fundamental thing that prayer means is talking to God. I think what we have here is a similar phrase that appears in Isaiah 44, 5, where we see this one will say, and I'm just getting at the phrase here, so the context is not as important here. Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, 5 says, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. What does call in the name of the Lord mean in this context? It's like your surname. You know, the most important thing about me is not that my name is Nicholas Kraus. Kraus traces a biological descent and ancestry, which does matter. It is important if you want to know who I am. But if you want to know who I am, the surname Christian is way more significant. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of the fact that our citizenship, or I think it's 3 actually, Philippians 3, that we have a citizenship in this world. He was speaking to Roman citizens who were proud of their citizenship. And he said, but our citizenship that's more important is where? In heaven. What's the surname that we're identified with that's the distinguishing mark of God's people? It's not our accomplishments. It's that we belong to Christ. And this is the moment in history where God's people were seen and identified as God's people. The same way in Acts chapter 11 verse 26. We had followers of Christ before Acts chapter 11, but they were identified as Christians, as followers of Christ at Antioch. Where does this leave us? Well, we understand that what the world offers is good things, things we can enjoy, but within balance. Present things should not be the only things that fill our heads. We should be living for our other citizenship in heaven. There's a sense in which I understand why Christians don't have all the amount of cultural accomplishments that the world has. One is just sheer numbers. And a combined ingenuity. But another aspect of it is the fact that our focus is split. We're living for this world and enjoying things of this world, but our minds are set on things above. We're living not for earthly treasures, but for heavenly ones. 
We're not living to get rich here, even though that happens sometimes when you follow God-designed God principles. Our riches are with our inheritance in Christ. We don't seek power here because we seek power and we have power that belongs to the heirs, those who belong to God's kingdom and are protected by God's armies to accomplish God's purposes. This is our identity. And sin holds back everyone's efforts in this world. But we have to be clear that all our efforts, all our successes, all of our achievements, if we're talking about the achievements of Nick Krause, the best I can do is mitigate the pain in the world. It's only the achievement of Christ which can be our boast as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, talking to Christians, says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak, or rather, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of you who are in Christ, notice wisdom does not go away, who became to us wisdom in God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you expect to get out of this life? Is it comfort? Is it wealth? Is it strength? Is it respect? What grants you security? If it is not Christ, if it's not that, that, that Christ and belonging to him is the thing that you boast about to people, we have an opportunity to change. Today is the day of repentance. The Holy Spirit is still working in his word through his word, by his word, right now. If you're hearing the word of God, it's going into your heart, and we're called to respond to it. We're called to make Christ and his works, not our own, our boast. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us to have good set expectations for what we will get out of this life. Lord, we confess that some of us have more comfortable lives than others, and we have more distractions in our life. And even in living in the 21st century, we have so many distractions offered by technology, all these good things in the world in which we can abide in, in our, with our riches. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be taken off of worthless things, and that we would look to the ways of God and rejoice in them. Take pleasure in those things. Lord, we confess that 
our natural inclination is to pursue the desires of our own heart, to lean on our own understanding. May we, Lord, go to Christ. Seek to have the Word of God change our priorities, change our focus, and place right values on the right things. And Lord, what will it profit a man if we gain the whole world but lose our soul? The answer is obvious, and we confess it. Worthless. So may anyone who's pursuing the world, may they instead pursue knowing Christ, seeking true redemption in Him, forgiveness of their sins, and reconciliation with our Father by the power of the Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.